Welcome to CXO Talk episode 814. Today we're discussing enterprise AI from planning and strategy to execution. Our guest is Murley Burleswar, who is the head of analytics for the U.S. Personal Bank at Citi. And with that, Murley, welcome back to CXO Talk. It's great to see you. Michael, it's just such a delight to reconnect with you. It's almost been a year since our last conversation. So much has changed in the world since then. Uh, thrilled to be spending some time with you this afternoon. And by the way, congratulations, 814. That's a big number. Well done. Murley, tell us about your work at City. Our mission statement for our team, Michael, is to deliver faster, wider, and deeper data-driven insights to achieve superior decisions and material financial outcomes. Why we care about that mission statement is simply because we see our remit as orchestrating outcomes through the power of data-driven intelligence and curiosity and recognize that success isn't delivery of an analysis or a tool. Rather, success is measured by what is the change end-to-end -end that we've been able to affect through cross-functional collaboration, whether that change is measured in financial outcomes that are material or whether that is measured in adoption and engagement with some of our solutions. A lot of times with technology, people talk about the tools, and yet you're very focused on the end outcome. One of my subtle quibbles with the world today is, even in the world of Gen AI, we spend quite a bit of time talking about which large language model is better than the other. And I'm not suggesting that isn't an important conversation at all. That is a very important conversation. My perspective, Michael, is if we were to zoom out just a tad bit, we all recognize that machine learning and artificial intelligence is fundamentally and profoundly reinventing society in ways that has not happened in the history of humankind. And if we were to juxtapose that with what is the role that this capability is playing in reinventing institutions to make them fit for purpose in this world for AI, the answer to that, certainly from an outside-in perspective, isn't as consistent as perhaps we'd like for it to be. And the opportunity that I see is for this capability to reimagine problem and opportunity statements in some important part of the business and think through how could we architect that through data-driven intelligence and recognize that while through a pure functional lens, you may not have end-to-end -end accountability, but you must take responsibility to answer the question of why did this matter, how did this matter, and how do we measure those outcomes in a way that everybody can agree upon as being material and meaningful and a step change. Merle, you mentioned Gen AI, generative AI. When we talk about enterprise AI and machine learning in general, how does this focus on outcomes translate into the way that you think about strategy and, and the planning of these kinds of projects? We've got a tool or a set of capabilities, and let's go figure out how we could apply that in a particular area. To me, that's actually starting at, at the wrong end of the spectrum. 
The way I think about it is the true power of this capability is where curiosity meets data, meets insight, meets strategy, meets change. And so for me, it's less about a use case by use case approach. And quite frankly, I'm somewhat allergic to the phrase use case because at its more fundamental level, these capabilities need to re-architect the what and how of decision-making, how people interact with tools and data, and what is sort of that interplay between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And in order to do that, you can't think of it as in a series of individual point problems. Rather, you have to reimagine some important critical aspect of your operations and be able to envisage how six, 12, 18 months from now, what progress should look like, what would be the metrics, and then back into how you use the tools, whether that's generative AI or whether that's machine learning, or quite frankly, perhaps in an odd instance, it could be an abacus. Can you give us an example of how this plays out when you're constructing this, this kind of project and what you're thinking about? We try to have a very methodical systems-driven approach to identifying opportunities, Michael. And we ask a series of questions. Questions are, number one, is the process manual, i.e., is it heavily dependent upon human interpretation of uh, some, some content? Number two, is the coverage partial? If you're listening to calls to understand customer sentiment, are you listening to a fraction of the calls? Uh, if, you, if you make a mistake, is there a meaningful regulatory or customer implication? Is there an out-of-pocket cost associated with this that is non-trivial? And has the process not changed? How has the process changed in the last couple of decades? And so if you apply that framework, you start thinking about individual problem statements, and you think about how you could re-architect that process in a meaningful way. So one simple example is many institutions, whether they're B2B or B2C, have sizable marketing investments in, in the interest of attracting new consumers or customers, as it were. And we make those allocation decisions of that budget, historically, based on a set of artifacts. The question that we asked within the context of City is, A, could we bring more specificity in understanding how an increase or a decrease in a budget could have specific financial implications uh, that, that trade-offs that they could, they could be implying, number one. Number two is, what is the best decision possible given a set of constraints? Number three is, the macroeconomic environment is changing on a fairly consistent basis, whether it's through interest rates or other factors. So if you start taking some of these dimensions into consideration, you realize that part of the solution is to be able to build a software tool that can help you understand what's the best outcome possible. How do you translate an economic metric such as net present value into in-year financial P&L? And how do you create transparency so that analytics, product, marketing, finance, and other functions can have access to the same set of knowledge to make more sophisticated decisions. And in order to serve that macro problem statement, we actually built a software solution that helps us understand answers to these questions at a remarkable level of granularity. Just giving you one example, but obviously happy to unpack others. It sounds like this is your mechanism 
for ensuring that in general, technology projects align to the many different dimensions and business objectives that you have. If I were to step back, uh, you think about people in functions similar to this. In my experience, we get stuck in one of three gears. Gear number one is being a pure sort of service orientation mindset of you ask me a question and I answer it. It's valuable from a tactical standpoint, but it's not necessarily shaping and architecting the strategy in a meaningful way. Gear number two tends to be, goodness, I've got to get my data infrastructure and architecture perfected. We need to be cloud native, and that's a two, three, four, five year process of 100 million plus investment. Up until then, we cannot deliver strategic material value in the here and now. And gear number three tends to be a little bit, in my view, an excessive obsession with, uh, with, the, the, with the latest technologies or capabilities, whether that was blockchain slash crypto day before yesterday, perhaps metaverse yesterday, and generative AI. And all of these are profound and meaningful. So the question isn't whether they're valuable or not. The question is, how do you develop a blueprint for what success looks like in critical material aspects of your operations and then how do you back into thinking about how these tools can be in service of that objective? Which is why my firm view is that the, the, the solution doesn't start with the tool. Let's actually set the tool aside. The solution starts with imagination and curiosity and being able to rethink how decisions should be made and then asking the question, how could we achieve that uh, promised land and what tools and technologies and data assets do we need in service of achieving that broader objective? Please subscribe to the CXO Talk newsletter. Hit our site, cxotalk.com, subscribe to the newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have a question from Twitter from Arsalan Khan, who always asks the best questions. He's a regular listener of CXO Talk specifically about this point on curiosity that you made. And he said, when it comes to AI, how do you incentivize curiosity among employees? Is it an innate personal attribute? Or can you teach folks to have the kind of intellectual curiosity that seems so important for what you're doing? Most things in life, the answer is it's a little bit of both. I'm not hedging, but I do believe some of it is our innate mindset of how do we see our identity? If we were to see our identity as factory workers or providers of analytics that somebody else is asking us questions about, then we're not giving ourselves the room to be able to have that imagination. So for me, it is part innately how are people wired, uh, part how do we create a culture where we do value that pragmatic innovation and that mindset of challenging and asking questions and being able to reimagine how a particular issue could be resolved? And some of it is also probably incentives. And sometimes the hardest part is actually getting started. And in my view, uh, the more real we make it, uh, the more concrete, pragmatic uh, examples that people have to latch onto, they can then gain some of that inspiration and connect that to their day-to-day -day routines to be able to apply some of that to the best of their abilities. Everybody has their own set of uh, 
core competencies and capabilities. So not everybody is going to be at the same point. However, as long as we're steadily progressing in our individual and collective journeys at a, an appropriate rate, we're making progress. Do you see AI and machine learning projects as being different than other technologies? And if so, how? Yes. And the reason it is different is the power of these capabilities continues to accelerate in ways that we probably could not have even imagined 10 years ago. Uh, you think about generative AI, large language models have existed for a while, but that tsunami of uh, Gen AI has really hit us in a pretty profound way uh, in, in the last 12 months or so. And why is that? In part, it's because of the compute environment continuing to make step change progress that allows you to process at a faster pace than before. That data acceleration availability of data has, has been uh, 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 an observation or, or, or benefit that has existed for the better part of the last several decades, but the pace at which the definition of data is expanding and the availability and access of it is expanding continues to accelerate. So it's really, to me, that sort of nexus of uh, compute um, and the sophistication of algorithms and the access to data that is really thrusting us to a whole new level of opportunity in terms of the questions we could ask and answer and how we could reimagine the world being different uh, in 6, 8, 12, 24 months from now. How do these differences then translate into what you do, uh, thinking about the opportunities that you mentioned going into the future and the way that you plan and invest? Number one, I have a fundamental belief in this notion of pragmatic innovation. So you could think about innovation as roaming through the forest, and being a pure explorer and hoping perhaps that you find something interesting and having innate satisfaction in the journey itself. I have a slightly different philosophy toward innovation. My philosophy toward innovation is very much about that disciplined, rigorous um, orientation of being able to have a perspective on some important part of a change that you want to be able to architect and working your way back. And that allows my team and me to start with what is the question? What is the opportunity? What is the problem statement? Can we reimagine why our worlds, our collective worlds would be better in a meaningful way if we were to solve that? And then sort of get to the brass tacks of how could we bridge the gap from where we are to where we'd like to be 8, 12, 14 months from now. That's sort of how we approach most of our innovation. And in that universe, you have an operating discipline that is very clear on how do we measure success? Is it financials? Is it some form of adoption? Is it some form of reduction in or improvement in uh, risk and controls? Uh, is it um, noteworthy reduction in customer friction, some of which can also be connected to financials. So having a very clear sense of why does this matter? How would we measure whether this is having the impact? What is the scale of that? And how could we back into how we bridge the gap from where we are 
to where we would like to be. That's the pragmatism with which we approach this. And that allows us to have um, a, a, a more keen sense of measurement and an understanding of what success looks like. Not that we wouldn't course correct, but you do have a perspective on what success looks like. I'll give you one simple example. We all know that interest rates are going up. They have been for the better part of the last year and a half. And for banks, the problem statement of how do I get smarter in my pricing strategies for my deposit products is an important question. How do you answer that? Historically, many institutions probably have made decisions based on instinct, and it also perhaps wasn't as big of a question historically, given that the interest rates were quite low for the better part of the last decade plus. But in a rising interest rate environment, that question of how do I understand the trade-offs of offering a higher interest rate in this product? How will that affect my deposit growth, my P&L? How will that affect my uh, customers and, and sort of my engagement on a suite of products? How do I put numbers around that? How do I match human intelligence with data-driven intelligence? Can I build a software solution that can simulate and forecast and tell me what's the best outcome possible? That, those sets of questions is what guide us to say, gosh, you know, we can actually go back and we can actually do all of the uh, deep dive analytical work from an algorithm development standpoint, but then we can also build a software that can bring more agility and transparency uh, and, and clarity and sophistication to decision-making at a segment level. What are some of the challenges that emerge when you're trying to grapple with such rapidly evolving technology like generative AI, and you want to maintain that rigorous, structured approach? First thing that I would say, Michael, is um, to not get enamored with the technology. The technology is a tool. It's in service of something that you're trying to solve for. Um, and, and, and the issue that I see across institutions, having uh, friends and colleagues in a variety of industries, is this notion of we need a few Gen AI use cases. And I can, to some extent, empathize as to why we would want that, because we're trying to build that muscle of saying, we want to engage with this capability and let's sort of create some momentum. On the flip side, that's sort of like saying, I've got a hammer and now, you know, could you help me find a nail? Uh, versus really the way you'd start with is saying, I can actually imagine what my home would look like. I could imagine sort of that I have a vision of what my home would look like. And in order to create that structure, I need wood, I need hammers, I need nails, I need saws, I need a bunch of different things. And how can I start coalescing those things together? And what does my project management and operating discipline look like? What are my measures and milestones every step of the way? So that's a different way of thinking. So my view is do not get obsessed with the technology, understand and appreciate what it could do, but start with the opportunity and problem statement and work your way toward why is that worthy of solving? How confident are you? One of the questions that we think about is toggling time, value, and certainty and how we think about prioritizing a uh, problem or opportunity statement as a way of building a discipline of having a healthy portfolio that collectively can be very powerful in re-architecting critical aspects of our business. 
The other thing that I would say, Michael, is let's recognize that at the end of the day, you're reinventing roles. You're reinventing how people, human beings, interact with data and tools. So there's a human element of it because you're reshaping what decisions are made and how decisions are made. And that is a non-trivial cultural change as well because our sense of identities will feel a little bit different as this, uh, as this capability continues to progress. And so our ability to adapt, our ability to have a bit more of a growth mindset, uh, our ability to recognize that yesterday's paradigm might not be perfectly portable to today or tomorrow um, is, is critically important. And our ability to think about how that re-architects our, our human structure within institutions and how people interact with each other and what their roles are, are absolutely critical. And you'll notice in my answer, I didn't actually talk about data infrastructure. I didn't talk about large language models. Um, I, I, I didn't talk about which cloud partner and which tools. And the reason I didn't do that, Michael, is it's not that those aren't important. They absolutely are. I, in my view, there's so much oxygen being given to those conversations. And on a proportionate basis, in my perspective, there's not enough um, discussion being uh, energy given to these concepts of recognizing that you're trying to re-architect how institutions work to be fit for purpose in the next decade and beyond. And that's a fundamentally different mindset versus necessarily only exclusively focusing on the tangible and the concrete of which tool am I using or which large language model am I using? Does it feel weird not to talk about the tools and the technology when you're having these discussions? It's important to talk about them. And I'm not suggesting that I do not talk about them. My point is that those, uh, the, the discussion about tools and technologies takes up so much of the energy that not enough is being given to the more profound and fundamental and strategic implications of these capabilities and how they will reshape institutions and ultimately society. That's a very powerful question. And so the magic is in being able to connect the concrete tactical nature of the tools to saying, all right, in the next six, 12, 18, 24 months, in a very well-defined specific way, do, could I articulate what my milestones are, what my key performance indicators are of success? Uh, what is the financial implication? What does that mean in terms of cultural evolution, in terms of how people need to be able to interact with this technology? What is that harmony, that interplay between human intelligence and machine intelligence? All of those, even though they might sound a little bit abstract, have incredible pragmatic implications in the here and now, and you need to be able to, uh, to, be able to uh, uh, envision that and put parameters around that and then have an operating discipline, recognizing that there's not 100% certainty, it's still a probabilistic world, so you're going to have to make some adjustments as you gain more information, but it is to acknowledge the fact that the implications of this can be much more profound and strategic and you've got to be able to see that end to end. So in many ways, when I think about what guides my team, there's three axioms that uh, uh, we believe to be non-negotiable. Number one is this notion of follow partner lead. 
Um, if you were to ask me to put percentages, I'd say probably rough order of magnitude, 70% of what we do is lead. And lead for me is uh, being able to reimagine some important aspect of something that we do uh, and, and being able to guide all of these different uh, teams, these functions that, uh, that for whom that is relevant and to be able to guide that change, orchestrate that and achieve a set of measurements. So playing that sort of conductor role or in the context of rowing that coxswain role where you're actually harmonizing functions in service of a bigger uh, commercial uh, objective is one. Number two is this notion of uh, analytics as a software, which is the recognition that it's no longer good enough to build models or to deliver algorithms. You have to be able to understand what is that last mile of the adoption and the interaction and the interplay. Do you need to build software tools and such in order to embed these algorithms to be able to orchestrate that change? And the third axiom is measuring success through the lens of a CEO, CFO, and head of audit. CEO is materiality, CFO is it's not real unless and until it hits the financials, not just based on my team's perspective, but, uh, but by the finance function and, and other partners involved. And head of audit is uh, traceability and attribution to be able to answer the question, are we architecting the change that we intended to? Do we have the right measurements in place? Uh, and is this materially reinventing a uh, critical aspect of our firm? Julio Gonzalez on LinkedIn says, he has a couple of questions. Uh, what's your opinion of the influence of generative AI on banks and financial services in regard to data and data analytics? The capability of generative AI is going to be very powerful across industries. And... Uh, if you think about what at the core of it generative AI does, there's some form of uh, code and content generation. There's some form of content extraction and summarization. And there's some form of conversational intelligence. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive by any stretch. So uh, we all recognize that there's overlap in these three categories that I just described. But at a slightly macro level, those are three things that generative AI can be profoundly influential in. And so whether it's banking or any other industry, do, is, is code being created? Or do you need to create content, whether that is uh, advertising brochures or what have you, things of that nature, from the data that you have? Well, that problem statement spans pretty much any industry that we could think of. Second is content extraction and summarization. Well, do you have people reading documents, trying to synthesize that? Do you have people that are having to process a bunch of documents to look for particular fields and particular pieces of information and are, are looking to be able to pull that out in the context of some other issue that they're trying to resolve? And then last but not the least is, do you have data where you want to know whether it is customer behavior or whether it's operating metrics? What's different today than yesterday? And do you have a curiosity to want to be able to understand that without getting inundated with spreadsheets and uh, tables and such where you're looking for the needle in the haystack rather being able to say, I want that needle in the haystack to be identified for me so that I can then understand what it is, why it matters or whether it matters and what I do as a consequence. So if you think about those three categories, 
practically every industry that we know of, whether it's B2B or B2C, has profound implications for it. So yes, banking is probably in that sense no different than any other sector in terms of how profound this capability could be. However, let's recognize that in order to achieve that, you've got to be able to think, you've got to be able to be a systems thinker. So you cannot have a functional lens of I'm going to build this algorithm or I'm going to use this LLM to do this, that, and the other. You have to be able to think, how do I measure success end to end? And you have to recognize every step of the way. The development of the models is an important piece of it. It is one important piece of it. And so if you're trying to orchestrate end-to-end -end change, you've got to be able to be a systems thinker and a systems operator. That, to me, is critically important. Where I suspect many firms are going to miss this bus in the near to medium term is they say, well, you know, let's go do this use case and this, that, and the other, but there's no real cogent strategy. Uh, it becomes a one-off piecemeal approach versus thinking about how you want to re-architect some critical aspect of your operations, whether it's how you interact with customers or whether it is how you process paperwork or whether it is how employees on a large scale consume data and reports and such. So have the courage to be able to reimagine that, break that down into bite-sized chunks and work your way backward toward how you can achieve that in a systematized way. This is from Tony Clark on Twitter who says, how do the potential headwinds of AI regulation play into your approach and planned implementation velocity for the city AI program? Is there a thesis that underlies where you're focusing and where you're not? We're breaking new ground as society. It's not just the banking industry that is regulated. Many other sectors are also regulated. And quite frankly, regardless of whether an industry is regulated or not, the bar for all of the institutions within that industry should surpass anything that any regulator could set for you. Why is that important? It's important because, uh, number one, we tend to hold AI to, in my view, a whole different and higher standard than we hold HI, human intelligence, to. Number two is the underlying data that you have has inherent biases in it, and I think we all know about it. And so let's not be oblivious to it. So any model, AI, or more specifically Gen AI, has a risk of perpetuating bias that exists in your data. And, um, and, the, and the one risk is that it can accelerate that. So the key is what guardrails do you have to understand false positives, false negatives, hallucinations, and things of that nature um, and, and how do you ensure that you have a behind-the-scenes discipline around understanding exactly what the machine is doing and how do you have humans in the loop so that you don't have things running amok, but rather you're bringing that sensibility of recognizing that the magic is really at that interplay between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And so it's not about a pure AI or pure HI. It's about how do you find that harmony between the two uh, in a way that brings the best of both? Because let's face it, right? As much as we admire and appreciate machines, essentially what they do is compute stuff faster based on historic data. They're not able to draw inferences. They're not able to have imagination 
not as of yet, not that I know of. Um, and, and they're not able to rethink something. Any thoughts on the impact of potential regulation on slowing down AI efforts? Uh, any thought about that just very quickly? I don't think of it as slowing down as much as I think of it as bringing measured discipline and having a consistency in how an entire industry approaches something and ideally even across industries. I think of that as a good thing. And uh, one of my beliefs is that uh, in, a, in this first, itera first iterations, the first few iterations, let's actually focus on uh, problem statements that are a little bit more internally focused that don't have customer facing implications. Um, and let's recognize that yes, there is a, a crawl, walk, run dimension to this. Um, and let's not think of it in the world of regulations slowing things down. Let's actually frame it as regulations being a perspective that is adding more operating discipline and consistency and fairness to how we approach this. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we have a question from Arthlan Khan again on uh, enterprise architecture, a really interesting one. He says, data plus enterprise architecture gets you ahead in your AI journey and AI helps in disciplined data-based decision-making. How do you challenge or manage a, an executive who thinks AI should be just another project under digital transformation? Clearly a, a pretty steep learning curve for uh, many people or anybody who has that perspective. Quite frankly, if one steps back from their day-to-day -day work, wherever they work, whichever industry they're in, you can see you cannot escape the fact that this capability has profound implications. Um, and, and so for me, there's a learning and education process for all of us in different angles in the space to rethink our own, to understand and recognize our, our paradigms and biases, and to be able to rethink to what extent we need to shed that because the future is gonna look different and we need to build new skills and new ways of thinking. That to me is the most critical question because at the end of the day, this, cap this capability is re-architecting our sense of identity, how we work, how long we work, what we do in our work. Um, and, and, and for me, it starts with those fundamentals versus um, saying, gosh, you know what, this is another hammer and uh, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it to hammer a different kind of nail than I did before. How do you take a con the concept of an AI project and turn that into a tangible initiative yeah. that accomplishes all the goals? And again, very quickly. I don't think about projects as AI projects. Um, I think of it as a business problem slash opportunity we seek to solve with a lens on what does success look like 6, 12, 18 months out, uh, and then back into how do we get from here to there. Part of the answer is the algorithm development and the data that goes into the algorithm. Uh, an even bigger part of that journey is uh, coordination across different functions and the orchestration of the outcomes and understanding the technology underpinnings, understanding the legal compliance regulatory underpinnings, uh, understanding the strategic uh, you know, underpinnings, understanding the human capital underpinnings, 
and being able to connect that to metrics that uh, are uh, that we can smell, touch, see, feel, and experience, that to me is much more critical. Uh, the algorithm development in that sense is an important but one piece of it. Are there unique aspects of these AI projects, biz business initiatives that are different? I mean, for example, if you're talking about the, the measurements and the metrics, is, you, AI is, is different. And so how does that get reflected in this? It's less about whether the metrics are different. Uh, it's more about a recognition of the art of the possible. So I'll give you one example is, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, is uh, many institutions get streaming data on a daily basis. Uh, and that data can be related to specific operating metrics or it could be related to uh, customer behavior. In the context of banking, it could be where is somebody spending money, uh, wh how much of their bill are they paying, uh, are they logging onto their mobile app. In the context of metrics, it could be how does my digital funnel look, and so on and so forth. And I've been thinking about how today that information is consumed through a bunch of dif different reporting platforms. Uh, and, and sometimes we have automated alerts, but for most part, they're consumed and you, you start searching for it. What I thought about was how could I reimagine this process? How could I reimagine this process to have an anomaly detection engine that'll give you exactly a view on what is different today than yesterday without your having to ask or go searching for it? And that is a capability that is solvable through the lens of generative AI, because you have all of your streaming data, you can have a conversational intelligence veneer on top of it, and now you could actually uh, code in what you, uh, how you define anomalies, and then you don't have to know which metric you're searching for, you just know that things are different and you know what's different. And then this, this engine can actually even answer why is it different and it could also ultimately build predictive capabilities into it. What about the adoption aspects and creating a culture where people are understanding what actually is here in order to take advantage of it? And again, please answer very quickly now. Not easy because uh, we're all victims of inertia. And uh, for me, adoption is either shows up in your financials because it's been fully executed and you can measure it, or it uh, shows up in some form of engagement with a particular platform and how they're using it. There can be metrics around both, uh, and not all metrics have to be hard. Some of them can be around culture change and, and, and such, and those are equally as important as the hard financial metrics. And where is all of this headed at? city as far as uh, AI adoption and what you're just you're thinking? The broader question is, I think there's good energy recognizing that uh, there's a massive opportunity here, perhaps in ways that we didn't fully appreciate before the world of generative AI. Um, and there's a good bit of energy now to say, gosh, you know what, the implications of this are pretty profound. Um, and now how do we build that muscle along the analogy of crawl, walk, run uh, in order to have some material successes in the next six to 12 months that give us the, uh, the spring in our uh, feet to be able to then uh, be even more ambitious in our strategy through the lens of generative AI or more broadly AI. You had mentioned in the past when we spoke uh, about 
issues like anomaly detection and specific use cases. Do you want to touch on that just really quickly? We don't have uh, a dearth of data in most industries. Uh, we have, a, a, to some extent, perhaps a dearth of curiosity, uh, and, and we have a dearth of information that is insightful and actionable. And the question is, how do you bridge that gap? Uh, and it, the, the, you can't bridge that gap by creating more spreadsheets and, 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 and more platforms where data is thrown at you, however prettily it's presented to you. Uh, the question, the problem statement is, you don't know what anomaly to look for. You might not have an a priori hypothesis. What you want to know is what's different today. And you may not necessarily act upon everything that is different today, but good golly, you'd want to know. And perhaps you have a slightly different functional lens than I might. And the concept of the anomaly detection is to say, we can actually build an engine that'll tell you what's different today than yesterday or last week and last month. And uh, ultimately, we intend to be able to build capabilities that help you understand why that's happening and what might happen in the future. But this notion of being able to democratize access to intelligence in a way that is consumable through perhaps an interactive uh, conversational intelligence layer to me is uh, profound. And in this aspect of, of, of the world, uh, I think that it can be, it can be wonderful in uh, stoking that next level culture of curiosity and access to knowledge versus access to data. We have heard the term democratization of data for a long time now. You've shifted that to democratization of intelligence using AI as the mechanism or the vehicle to accomplish it. Indeed, well said. Democratization of data is just a thing unto itself. It doesn't accomplish anything. Democratization of intelligence is much more fundamental and uh, a, a massive cultural change in how you understand your business and how you reduce the friction between understanding and decision and outcome, whatever that might be. And with that, I want to say a huge thank you to Merle Burleswar for being our guest today. Merle, thank you so much for taking time to be here with us. It's been an absolute delight, Michael. I cannot believe that it's 40 minutes or 45 minutes past the hour. Um, I always end up speaking more than I think I did or intend to. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I look forward to staying connected and uh, tracking the growth of the space with you. Thank you for being here. Everybody who watched, thank you. You guys are an amazing audience. You're so smart. And the questions you ask are fantastic. Before you go, please subscribe to the CXO Talk newsletter. Hit our site, cxotalk.com, subscribe to the newsletter, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out cxotalk.com and we will see you again next time. We have amazing, great shows coming up, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.